We're in a series titled Comeback Kids. We're looking at the story of the Jews' return from the Babylonian exile. We're six weeks into this series. If you've missed earlier sermons, you can catch up online, clearwater.church. And this series covers a 110-year period in Israel's history starting in 538 B.C. with the first return under the leadership of Zerubbabel, about 50,000 Jews leaving Babylon and coming to, back to, to the Promised Land. And, uh, and it ends in 444 with the third return under Nehemiah. And today we're looking at the second return, uh, and that's under the leadership of Ezra. Now there's a book in the Bible called Ezra, because a whole lot of this book contains Ezra's first-person account of, uh, of his leadership and what God did during that time period. So turn in your Bible, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, right? Ezra. We've already been preaching some out of this book, but we don't really, we're not introduced to Ezra until chapter 7. So in your Bibles, Ezra chapter 7. In the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Persian Empire at this time is the greatest empire under the sun, Artaxerxes refers to himself as king of kings. And so Artaxerxes is sitting on the throne of Persia. In his reign, Ezra, the son of Sariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, He's the son of a bunch of other people. Then we get to uh, son of Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the chief priest. Uh, point is, Ezra can track his lineage all the way back to Aaron, Moses' brother-in-law, the very first priest of Israel. So he's a direct descendant. He's a Levite. Uh, he's a priest. He's a Jew. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. So Ezra, his family, 80 years earlier, had chosen to remain in exile and not go back. So he grew up not in the promised land. He grew up in, in Babylon. He was part of the Jewish diaspora. But he, he's going to head home or head back to the promised land or for him the first time. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. By the way, that's, that is a very important description of the Bible. Uh, many people view the Bible as uh, a book written by humans containing kind of the best of human wisdom. Or it's, the, it's a human's descriptions of how they have reached out to know God. But the Bible says about itself that it was given by the Lord to us. Uh, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, says all Scripture is God-breathed. Yes, God uh, speaks to us through human authors, so humans wrote the book, different books of the Bible, but God inspired it. Uh, God was ensuring that what they said was what he wanted us to know so that we could, so the man of God would be thoroughly equipped for every good work. 
It's profitable for doctrine, correction, instruction, and training in righteousness. So God, I mean, think about that. This is super, super important theologically. God who created the world and created you and created me and in whom we live and breathe and have our being, we, li- we exist because he wills it. He cares enough about us that he wants us to know him and so he has revealed himself to us in the word. Now, ultimately, that revelation was uh, most acutely given in the coming of Jesus, God in human flesh. But how do we know what Jesus taught and what he did? Because it was recorded for us in the Bible. And, and so as uh, Christians, we, we have a very high view of the Bible as the word of the Lord given to us that we might know him. So Ezra was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, by the way, the law of Moses is referring to the the Old Testament, that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. So that's amazing. Artaxerxes, the king of kings, knew Ezra. And Ezra, Ezra had had at least one audience with the king. And the king because the hand of the Lord was on Ezra, granted Ezra everything he wanted. So what is it that Ezra wanted? Well, from the rest of the story, we, we learn that, number one, Ezra said, King, I, wanna, I want permission to go to Jerusalem to teach the Jewish people the law of the Lord and ensure that they're obeying the law. And I would, like, uh, I would like you to allow all the Jews currently living in your empire who want to, to come with me. And the, the king said, yeah, that sounds great to me. Do it. In fact, we, uh, he, um, we have some excerpts from uh, the letter from the king. Verse 21 of chapter 7. I, Artaxerxes the king make a decree to all the treasurers in the province beyond the river. Whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, requires of you, let it be done with all diligence. Up to a hundred talents of silver, a hundred cores of wheat, a hundred baths of wine, a hundred baths of oil, and salt without prescribing how much. Whatever is decreed by the God of heaven, let it be done in full for the house of the God of heaven, lest his wrath be against the realm of the king and his sons." So Artaxerxes uh, has decided, you know what, it's in my best interest, it's in the best interest of the Persian Empire that the God of Israel be happy. And according to Ezra, the God of Israel is going to be happy if his people living in his land are obeying his laws. So Ezra, go back there and ensure that the Jewish people are obeying the commands of their God so that God is happy with me and with my sons. So in verse 25, and you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God. And those who don't know them, you shall teach. Whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of his goods, or for imprisonment. That's incredible. The Persian king says, Ezra, uh, I'm, uh, I am sending you to uh, Israel to ensure that the people 
know the law of the Lord and are obeying the law of the Lord. And if they're, if they're not, you have the power of the state behind you to make sure it happens. You can banish people. You could imprison people. You can confiscate their goods. You can even kill people. This is amazing. So Ezra says, blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king. And uh, another thing that uh, the king did is he gave a whole bunch of gold and silver vessels uh, for Ezra to take back and, and use in the temple. And he also encouraged, he, didn't, he not only gave his permission, but he encouraged the Jews living in his kingdom to go back with Ezra. And he said, and, and all the Jews who choose not to, I want you to be funding this, uh, this return. We, we learn a little bit more about Ezra in chapter 7, verse 10. I want to sit on this a little bit. We read, Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. So we, we don't have any indication that God you know, gave a special divine word to Ezra, I want you to go to Jerusalem and teach my people and make sure they're obeying. Uh, this is something that Ezra set his heart to do. Uh, and so that's for, we don't know why, but somehow uh, he had concluded there is nothing I would rather do, nothing that seems more uh, significant for, for my life than to study the Bible, to do what it says, and to teach the Bible in Israel. Uh, so let's, you know, and, and I think that progression is important, right? Number one, he set his heart to study the law of the Lord. He said, I want to know what God has said to us. I want to know what the Bible says. I want to know what God, uh, God's will and his ways, number one. But I'm not going to let it just be head knowledge, right? First, I'm going to study it, and I'm going to do it. So I don't want to just sound smart. I don't want to just be a teacher. First and foremost, I want to be a doer, right? Don't be hearers of the word only. Be ye doers also. Uh, and so this, you know, there's 18 inches from the head to the heart. And we better get the word of God from here to here. And if, if we have head knowledge and not action, well, actually, we're judged more harshly. So he, he set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it, and that's important, so that he can be like the Apostle Paul who says, come follow me as I follow Christ, right? Uh, and as Christian leaders, or just as Christian people, we want to be living in a way that we can say, you want to know what it looks like to follow Jesus? Look at the way I live. Do what I'm doing. We're not perfect. Even Paul wasn't perfect. Um, but we should be living with integrity so that we can say that. Study, do, and then finally he set his heart to teach the Lord's statutes and rules in Israel. So he, he set his heart to going, to going to the promised land and becoming a teacher of Israel. And uh, the Lord, the hand of the Lord was with him. God, God said... That's a good idea. That's a good desire. And by the way, we read in the New Testament sometime, uh, there's a prayer I love where it says, may I pray that all the good desires of your heart would come to pass, right? The people of God, we often have good desires uh, that God wants to uh, bring to reality. Uh, 
<clears throat> now, not, not all Christians are going to be teachers of the Bible like Ezra was, but I think we, should, I think we can all take his example of studying the law and doing it, right? Um, by the way, study after study after study has demonstrated that the number one most catalytic thing you can do spiritually is engage with the Bible. Um, there, in 2008, Lifeway Christian Research uh, did a study of 2,500 churches. And their conclusion, the number one predictor of spiritual health is Bible engagement. Uh, in the early 2000s, Willow Creek Association did a big study called the Reveal Study of 1,500 of their associated churches. Uh, and here was the conclusion of the study. When it comes to spiritual growth, nothing beats the Bible. Of all the personal spiritual practices, whether prayer, confession, tithing, journaling, solitude, serving, or worship, we find that one stands out, scripture reflection. More than any other practice, scripture reflection moves people forward in their love for God and love for others. So hear that. If you really want to grow spiritually, you've got to engage with the Bible. Now, I have a dear friend who cannot stand reading. He can't stand reading. And so he struggles to sit down on a regular basis. By the way, another study demonstrated what is called the power of four. Four or more times a week of engaging with the Bible, there seems to have a significant difference in spiritual outcomes. The power of four. And he has a really hard time sitting down and reading the Bible. Well, guess what? Now you can have people read the Bible to you on your telephone. And so you can be doing the dishes, and you can be driving, and, and you can be out on a walk and, and be listening to the Bible. Uh, I personally like engaging with the written text because I'm in charge of the pace. And uh, so often I'll read a line, and then I'll stop and think about it, and I'll go back and reread it, and you might pray about it. And, uh, and so I like being in control of the pace and cadence. But the, you know, there are many ways you can engage with the Bible, but the bottom line is, if you want to grow spiritually, you've got to be engaging regularly with the Bible. It's good to be at church on a weekly basis, especially when we're preaching the Bible, but the power of four, right? It's something we need to be doing during the week as well, and uh, you will notice a, uh, a much more rapid growth in your spiritual life. There were, in the first return, there were almost 50,000 who came back uh, with Zerubbabel. In this second return, there were four to 5,000. And they gathered at the river Ahava, and they spent three days beseeching the Lord for a safe return. They had a long way to go. They're carrying uh, gold and silver treasures and other, other things, and they're worried about bandits. And so they pray for the Lord to give them safe passage, which he does. They get back to, uh, they, they arrive at, uh, in Jerusalem. They're in the promised land. And the first thing they do is offer sacrifices. They, you know, they'd never been able to do that before. You can't offer sacrifices uh, outside of the temple. So now here they are. They're in Jerusalem. There's the temple. There's the big altar. And uh, they offer all kinds of sacrifices 
uh, to just celebrate what God is doing in their lives. And uh, it's been a, it's a tremendous uh, joy for them in their spiritual life. The next thing they do is they get the word out as to, you know, why Ezra is here and the authority Ezra has and the, the mission that the king has given him. Then we come to chapter 9 and we read this. After these things had been done, and so we really don't know the time. We, you know, was it weeks? Was it months? Was it years? We don't know. Uh, the, the length of time between chapter 8 and chapter 9, we don't know how much teaching Ezra had done. But we read, after these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, so Ezra's writing in the first person, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites. By the way, remember the tribe of Levi, one of the 12 tribes of Israel? And uh, they were responsible for administrating the religion. Uh, in, and so if you were born a Levite, uh, you already knew what you were going to do. God, the call for, of full-time ministry was on your life by virtue of the fact that you were a Levite. So the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations. From the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithfulness, faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. Whoa. So Ezra is made aware of a, a significant sin in the camp. And uh, that significant sin is that you have uh, Jewish people, Jewish men, who have married unbelievers. Now, most likely, we're talking almost exclusively about uh, people who had come back in the first return, 80 years earlier. And so, for decades now, right, they've been, they've been taking... Uh, non-Jewish wives giving their uh, non, they're agreeing to let their sons marry non-Jewish women, and uh, this is a big deal as as it's referred to here. Uh, the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the land. They haven't separated from the peoples of the land with their abominations. Now, why is this a problem? Well, first, it's a problem because it is a direct violation of the command of God to the Jews. Uh, when God first gave them the promised land, he said, uh, by the way, you may not marry non-Jews. You may not marry Canaanites. Um, and uh, this, was a, this was one of the sins for which the people had been kicked out of the land in the first place. Uh, the Jewish people had been ignoring this command and had been intermarrying people, unbelievers, uh, and that was one of the things that the prophets pointed out to them before the, first ex before the exile and said, you know, this is one of the sins for which God is actually booting you out of the land. You're being disobedient. So, so <clears throat> oh, the, the other issue, we'll talk more about this a little later, but the, the other fundamental issue uh, is the spiritual danger it posed. Now, if you think back into 
in Jewish history, the prime example is Solomon, King Solomon. King Solomon started off his life great. Uh, praying for wisdom, God gave him wisdom and wealth and, and, and power, and he seemed to be fully devoted to the Lord. But then he married foreign wives, and he had multiple wives, uh, and they, they uh, enticed him away from uh, faithfulness to God, and next thing you know, he's building uh, altars to their foreign gods, and he's offering sacrifices to idols. And so he, uh, uh, Solomon is kind of the prime example of a, of a Jewish man who, because he married an unbeliever, his heart uh, gets um, taken, his heart gets uh, uh, drawn away from the Lord and toward false worship. And, but that's happening, that was happening all over Israel before the exile. And now they're back in the land. They've been given a second chance, this remnant, and now they're, they're headed down the same path. And so Ezra is, when he hears this, he is so distressed. Verse 3 of chapter 9, As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Have you ever pulled hair from your own Head and beard, guys. I'd have to be pretty distressed to be pulling out my own hair. He's very distressed. Then all who trembled at the word of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And then he, he prays, O oh God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. And he goes on to say, basically, we have been a stiff-necked, rebellious, sinful people from the beginning. That's why you kicked us out of the land, but you have graciously given us a second chance. You preserved a remnant. You have allowed us to return. We have a, another opportunity to do it right, and here we are. Headed down the same path, oh God, how can you not be angry with us? And if you come against us again, how can it not be total game over? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? While Ezra prayed and made confession, chapter 10, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra, we have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. By the way, it's not, it's not about ethnicity. It's not about the blood. It's about faith. Because we, we know that, uh, you know, um, Ruth, the Moabitess, converted to faith in Christ, and then she was married by Boaz, and that was all celebrated. It's about unbelief. But that they refer to that as foreign foreign women. We have married foreign women from the peoples of the land, but even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children 
according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God. And let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task, and we're with you. Be strong and do it. So you hear what Shechaniah is saying. Okay, enough with the weeping, enough with the praying, let's act. Uh, If we act and address this great sin, uh, then we can stave off uh, the discipline of God, the punishment of God. And so, uh, what, the, what the community as a whole decides to do under the leadership of Ezra is put away these unbelieving wives and their children. And we'll talk about that in a little bit because that's, ex- that's an extreme act. But that's what happens. They're, for three months, they, they have these, open up these courts And uh, all the Jewish men who have married unbelieving uh, women, they they have their time in court. And I we we're not told what's happening, but I have to assume it's an examination of the faith of the wife and children. Are you in fact a believer or not? And uh, if she's pagan or if the children are pagan, then they are sent away according to the law. And I'm assuming there's you know, a fair distribution of wealth, etc. But bottom line is, this is massively uh, disruptive in, the li- in these family lives. And the community believes it's necessary in order to uh, be, get back into compliance with the law of God. And we read, on the first day of the 10th month, they sat down to examine the matter. And by the first day of the first month, they had come to the end of all the men who had married foreign women. Now, remember, Ezra has the power of the state. So I don't think everybody is raising, volunteering. Hey, I, I think this is forced on many of them. You know, the, the Jewish community is forcibly breaking these families apart and uh, sending these women home and their children home. All right, so I'm sure you understand the application of that for today. Have a good day. This is one of those passages you're like, okay, how do we apply this one today? All scripture is profitable. Okay. Well, yeah, how does this apply to us today? A couple applications. Number one, which I think is very direct, Christians should not marry unbelievers. Uh, The New Testament affirms this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, we read, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And some people say, well, maybe that's just talking about like business partnerships. Well, uh, yoke, right? A yoke is what goes across the shoulders of two animals so that they can pull together and join, join their energies to... Uh, do the do the work, and so if one animal is pulling this way and one's pulling that way, they're they're fighting with each other. They're un, or if you have a big animal and a small animal, they're unequally yoked. Well, how can this not apply to marriage? Is there any relationship that more yokes you to another person than marriage, and more possibility for uh, pulling? Uh, in different directions than one person who's trying to honor God through faith in Jesus and one who has, I have no interest in that. I'm not interested in tithing. I'm not interested in praying. I'm not interested in teaching our children 
you know, the gospel. I'm not interested in attending church. I have no interest in serving the way you want to serve. I don't agree with the way we should spend our, you know, with you, the way we should spend our time and our money. And Don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? Right? So clearly, uh, the New Testament teaches Christians... Limit yourselves to marrying other Christians. And uh, because on the positive side, I mean, faith in Jesus Christ, I look at my marriage, right? Faith in Jesus Christ has, a, has an unbelievable shaping effect on our marriage. I mean, I can't even conceive of being married to Sabrina without our mutual faith in Jesus and our priorities and our belief system. And I mean, it's just, it affects everything that we do. Now, she would be a, a beautiful person. She is a beautiful person, even without Christ, and I might be attracted to her. But, but there won't be, uh, by the way, I, I don't know if I've told you this, but I think I have at some point. When I was in college, I went, out, I went on a blind date with this girl. She was the head of the, of the um, water polo team. She was quite attractive. And she, I was a wrestler back then. I was pretty studly. She was interested in me. And uh, I realized pretty, pretty quickly, uh, I better not go down this road. Because she was not a believer. And so I, uh, but she pressed me on, she wanted to know, you know, why aren't we moving forward? And so I, I sat down with her, I actually drew her three concentric circles, not that I recommend this, but I, <laughs> and bottom line is my central, my, my most inward circle with Jesus. I said, look, you know, we can't share what is most important to me. I can't share that with you because you're not a believer. Well, she didn't walk away and say, oh, that makes total sense. I agree with you. She was a little irritated. But about a year later, she, uh, I bumped into her on campus, and she said, you know, I've been taking this uh, class on the Bible, and I've had to read the whole Bible in this class, and I actually, not that I agree, but I can see where you're coming from now. So, bottom line is, I don't know why I told you this story. Just, <laughs> for those of you who aren't yet married, for those of you who aren't yet married, you have got to predetermine. I am limiting myself to a Christian for marriage. And now here, let me tell you, uh, you have to predetermine that because uh, if you try to make that decision after your heart started to go, you know, why make it that much harder for you to, to obey God? So here are a couple things. One is, um, oh, but I'm going to, you know, if I hang out with him, he's attracted to me so he'll be attracted to God, and he'll become a Christian. And so the best chance for him to be saved is for me to continue to you know, love on him. Well, look, people like moral. People are attracted to moral people who are honest and kind and good and not so selfish, right? But just because he's attracted to you does not mean he wants to repent of his sin and says put his faith in Jesus Christ and, and let Jesus be Lord of his life. Right? Those two th you have to just say, um, I can be friends with this person, 
but not until there is a genuine conversion is that person on the table to marry. You have to just be hard, hard-nosed with yourself about this. Um, so, oh, but, you know, yeah. So, if they're not a Christian, they're not God's gift to you. I don't care how they make you feel or how they smell or how they look or how soft they are. No, they're Satan's temptation to take your heart away from the Lord. Until they are a follower of Jesus Christ, they're, they're not on the, the future. My mother had a, a future uh, daughter-in-law list. And she told her four sons, by the way, she's on the daughter-in-law list. And like, I didn't even ask you about her. But, well, she just, just so you know, she's on the daughter-in-law list. She doesn't get on the future wife list, the possible light wife list, unless she is a Christian. All right, you will, uh, I mean, who you marry, other than, I I often tell my daughters, I'm like, look, the decision to make Jesus Lord of your life, number one most significant decision you can make in life, the second is who you marry, has the biggest impact on your life. Don't blow that one, all right? And uh, number one, this, you know, for my girls, it's you got to marry a Christian man. That's the most important. Well, what if you are already married to an unbeliever? Ooh, I won't answer that yet until we get to our next application. So the next application, I will answer that. So the, the second application, the second application I see from this text is uh, addressing sin is worth the pain. If you, you know, when you leave here and you actually start thinking about how disruptive this was, I mean, this is unbelievable. These marriages might have been around for decades, right? You, you might have been married to this person 30 years and had multiple children. And, and you're, that marriage is being broken apart. Your kids are being, your unbelieving kids and spouse are being sent away. That is massively, massively disruptive to those families. Can addressing sin ever really, you know, is it, is it really worth that kind of disruption? You know, um, I often say to myself and others, you can't change the past. You cannot change the past. All you can ask is what, what is the faith response today? You can, you can change today and, and the future. Um, but what if you, so you've sinned, right? What do you do? Well, you certainly repent. But sometimes you need to make restitution. And restitution can, can, can be painful. It can be costly. It can be very, very hard. It can be very, very inconvenient. Uh, but I think that one of the teachings of the Bible is sin is so distru- disruptive. It's so destructive. It's so destructive. And spiritual health is so important that it is worth the pain. It's worth the cost to deal with the sin in your life. Uh, and what is it, Matthew 5.22, 5.28? I actually think I have it on the screen. You have not yet resisted to... Oh, no, no, that's, that's the one about if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. I don't think it's really saying that. It's being hyperbolic. But it's saying, look, sin in your life is a big deal, and it's worth you know, going to serious extents to get out of your life. Uh, I forget what the scripture is where it says it's not... Uh, you have not yet resisted sin to the point of shedding your blood. Uh, you know. So, um, 
Now, okay, so, so to this question. Now, to this question of, all right, but I am married to an unbeliever. Now what do I do? Well, if we didn't have New Testament teaching, we might take this story and say, send her away or send him away. But the, but the New Testament uh, addresses this directly. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. By the way, 1 Corinthians 7 is a key text on marriage issues. You might want to note that. 1 Corinthians 7, 12. <clears throat> to the rest I say, I not the Lord. That's interesting. Paul is here saying, this is me talking with my personal advice. This is not the command of God, which, by the way, it has been up until now. To the rest I say, I not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she, cons and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. All right. There's the New Testament a clarification on the will of God. If you uh, are married to an, unbelie an unbelieving, you're a man, Christian man, you're married to an unbelieving wife. If she consents to live with you, he should not divorce her. Verse 13, if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. By holy, it doesn't mean she's saved or he's saved, but there is some sanctifying effect that being married to you has in their life. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So now, it, now it's saying, you know, you don't really know the, the ultimate spiritual outcome uh, in your, of your husband or uh, unbelieving husband or wife. But the, so the New Testament is very clear. If you're married to an unbeliever... Uh, and, and he or she wishes to live, you know, consents to live with you, then you don't try to, you don't divorce them, you don't send them away. You live with them, and you love them, and you be the best husband or the best wife you can possibly be, and seek to have a godly influence in their life. And who knows? They might, in fact, in time, come put their faith in Christ and become a Christian. And then you got a Christian marriage. You should absolutely pray toward that and, and uh, work toward that end in very gracious, wise ways. Anybody else see some applications? Because that's all I got from this. <laughs> but I think very important, uh, powerful applications. Um, what a, don't underestimate the spiritual impact that your marriage has on your life. And so if you're, if you're going to get married, then recognizing that, limit yourself to marrying another believer. And if you've got sin in your life and you're thinking, ah, but addressing that sin is too painful, it's too, uh, it's too inconvenient, it's too costly, I, I think there's a big lesson in this. All right, let's bow our heads. Lord, we've heard from your word. We have opened our hearts, spirit of the living God, 
uh, we receive. What's the challenge for you? State it to the Lord. Receive it. Lord, may we be people who, like Ezra, set our hearts about to studying your word so that we know what is right and then we do it. And Lord, then we don't have to endure such massive disrupting consequences of sin in our life. Uh, Lord, we, would, we are much wiser uh, to study your word, to do your word, and to have your blessing all over our, all aspects of our life. And we commit ourselves to that in Jesus' name. Amen.